0: Each week uh, this fall, we're we're taking one passage from the book of Genesis and we are correlating it to one particular problem in our culture and often in our church as well. And so today we're going to be looking at the problem of love and particularly the problems we have in the area of sexuality. But let me begin by mentioning a book. It was written by Richard Weaver, a University of Chicago professor in 1948. And its title, I think... Clearly formulates the premise for this sermon series. The title is Ideas Have Consequences. Ideas Have Consequences. As we work through these chapters, these several chapters of Genesis, I hope that those of us who are Christians are challenged to embrace the biblical worldview with all its implications and work it out in practice. I hope that each of us who's a Christian will understand that these ideas, these biblical teachings have far-reaching implications and consequences. However, I'm not not only addressing Christians, I'm also addressing anybody who might listen in and, and pay attention to this sermon series. And if you're not a religious person, you're not a church person, I want to encourage you to examine your own worldview. Are you okay with the consequences of your ideas? Or perhaps, perhaps the Christian worldview is actually a better explanation of reality. And perhaps the Christian ideas explain much better what you feel, what you aspire to, what you struggle with than any other set of beliefs. So as I preach on these, frankly, massive topics... I I realize that, of course, I can't cover everything, and I don't understand everything. So I encourage more conversation beyond these sermons. So part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make us think about these things and deeply reflect on them through Scripture, and yet continue this conversation as we apply these ideas into very often complex realities in our lives. So we're doing a series of Q&As and the next one is on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday at 7 o'clock on Facebook, where I'll I'll try to answer some of the questions. So if you feel like I haven't addressed something or you need more examples of something I mean or you want to clarify something or you have just completely different questions, please talk to me, submit them on Facebook or on Realm if you're part of the church social network. Please ask me more questions and let's try to process them together. Whether you are religious or not, I welcome all interaction because these are important things. These are things that we all are wrestling with. And we have to get a handle on these massive, massive topics. And by the way, both the audio and the manuscript of every sermon is available on our website. So you can actually see what I said in the audio and what I meant to say in the manuscript. Okay? So you can see the connection or the, the dissonance between the two. Okay. So, today, we're looking at the problem of love, and and we're looking at Genesis 3 again. This is the third time we're going back to this chapter, because this is such a rich explanation of our problems, and so we're again and again going back to it. Next week, I promise, we'll move on and go to Genesis 4, but today, we're looking at Genesis 3, and I'm going to ask three questions to our text, three questions, and that's our outline. Number one, what happened in the garden? what happened as it relates to love and sexuality and human relationships what happened to adam and eve secondly how does it affect us today how does it affect us today? how are we dealing with sexuality and love today what are our issues today and finally the last question what can be done what can be done okay so what happened i think the key idea for understanding the fall of humanity in genesis 3 is this idea of separation. If you've been paying attention, we we summarize every sermon in a sentence, and every sentence during this series begins with, apart from God, we can't do something. We can't know something. This is on purpose, because what happened with us, the cause of all our problems, is that we're separated from God. We're apart from Him, and apart from Him, we simply cannot live the way we're supposed to live. And so we've talked about being separated from God and thus separated from His life. That's our experience of death. We've talked about being separated from God's truth, which is why we're often deceived and self-deceived. And there's so many other issues that come up just simply from our separation from God. And today, we're looking at our separation from God's love. We're separated from His love and acceptance. And we will see specifically how that loss of love affects human sexuality. So look at Genesis 2.25 with me first. Previous chapter, Genesis 2.25. Here's a beautiful description of how human relationships and specifically human sexuality is supposed to function. Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Human beings were created to be open and secure in their relationships. Relationships with God and relationships with one another. There was nothing to hide. There were were no power struggles. There was no manipulation. There was no abuse. There was no shame. But look at what happened after Adam and Eve departed from God, after they separated by God by disobeying His command. And this is Genesis 3, verse 7. See the contrast. In Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now their nakedness is a problem. They see something they didn't see before, and now they are covering up, they are hiding because they have become ashamed. Now, why does it say that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked? I mean, clearly they knew before they were naked. They could see before and they knew that they were naked before. So what changed here? Well, one commentator suggests that now they saw themselves apart from God. They saw themselves as they were without God. So they could no longer see how God saw them because they've departed, they've separated from God. They couldn't see themselves spiritually. All that was left was the physical nakedness. Now listen to what this commentator says. To live in the image of God is to see everything with the eyes of faithful obedience. The plants are to be tilled, the animals are to be kept. They are real and they are seen But their meaning and purpose is illuminated by God's plan for all things, entrance into Sabbath rest and participation in divine life. However, when the man and woman believe the serpent's lie, they give priority to physical life, and their vision shifts focus. Everything is now seen in terms of the project of bodily existence, one that involves satisfying transient desires and ensuring survival. Thus, the nakedness that they see is really the truth of the lie they believe. After the transgression, they see themselves as they were chosen as they have chosen to live, for the sake of physical life, unadorned by God's purpose. Now, what he's saying is that before they saw themselves not just as physical human beings, but as beings in relationship with God. Adorned with God's purpose and God's image. So they saw themselves completely as they were. Physical and spiritual beings in a relationship with God, harmoniously living their lives under God's purpose. Well, now that purpose is gone. They've rejected God, they've rejected His word, they've rejected His love. Now they can only see themselves as they are without God. Unadorned by God's purpose. Now, physical nakedness before the fall was completely appropriate because they were adorned spiritually with God's purpose and even more importantly with God's love. There was nothing shameful about it. But now, apart from God's love, they see their nakedness as deficiency. Now, another question worth asking, and this this comes from Chuck Lavati. Thank you, Chuck, for this question why did they immediately make loincloths? Why not hats? Why not gloves? Right? Why not masks? Why loincloths? What happened here? Now, to answer this question, we need to understand the concept of shame. And you thought that after last week I was done talking about shame. I'm not. There's more shame talk for you this morning. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It's really important that those two go together in Genesis 2. Naked and not ashamed. But after the fall, they became ashamed of their nakedness and covered it up with fig leaves immediately after they disobeyed God. So what is shame? That's a key concept. Shame is experience of vulnerability and rejection. Shame is experience of vulnerability and rejection. The degree of shame depends on the degree of vulnerability and rejection. So before the fall, Adam and Eve were completely vulnerable and completely accepted by God and by each other. They were naked and not ashamed. There was no problem there because they were completely open, naked, right, and completely accepted. There was no dissonance between vulnerability and acceptance. However, this is what happened after the fall. They lost God's acceptance. And the more vulnerable they are, the more rejected they feel by God, and the more shame they experience. This is what changed. All of a sudden, they are no longer confident in God's acceptance. Why? Well, they they went against God. They've accused God of not being good. They've rejected God's love. They've rebelled against God. They've put themselves in the place of God. Of course, this is how you lose God's acceptance. But they're still vulnerable before God. They're still naked before Him. And so how do they deal with the shame? They cover themselves up. They protect their vulnerability. They're saying, we can't be as vulnerable as we used to be because there's no acceptance. And for the fear of rejection, we're hiding. We're covering ourselves up. Now, why one clause? Because we are at our most vulnerable when we, are, when we are vulnerable sexually. Now, when you talk about shame, almost instantly, most of us think about sex. We think about something sexual because that's where a lot of shame happens to us. Why? Because we are most vulnerable in that area. And so I think what happened here is that that when Adam and Eve realized that they were no longer accepted with God, they realized that they have to cover up their most vulnerable area, which is human sexuality. Having lost God's love and acceptance, now they can't even count on each other's love and acceptance anymore. This whole love dynamic has shifted. And so they are forced to protect themselves from rejection. So they're covering their most vulnerable areas. They can no longer be open with each other or with God because they have become ashamed of themselves. Now one of the consequences of the fall on sexual relationships is seen in verse 16. It's important to make these connections in this chapter. God says to Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is a a verse that has puzzled many interpreters of Scripture. Perhaps this is a verse you're wondering about. I think it simply means that now romantic relationships, husband and wife relationships, have been distorted by sin And they are now most often characterized by exercise of power and not love. So, what God is saying is now that you've lost my love and you can't count on each other's love anymore, what you're gonna try to do to each other is dominate each other. The wife will try to rule over the husband. That's what it means the desire will be contrary to her husband. But the husband will try to rule the wife. And so the dynamic is one of power and not of love. You see, love is self-giving. You submit out of love, you lead out of love. There's no dominance there. But because they're separated from God's love, everything has changed now. And specifically in romantic sexual relationships, it's power and not love. This is what's happened. And, And please check that against your experience. See if what I'm saying from Scripture is really true. I think it's absolutely true, and all of us know that. Our sexuality has been placed in the context of not love, but power. And this is a huge, huge problem because it's not designed to function that way. So, of course, we're going to see all sorts of issues coming out of that. Each person tries to dominate their partner. And instead of being vulnerable with each other, And accepting each other, which is the design, we are guarded and careful and use our nakedness, expressions of our true self, sexual expressions of true self, as negotiation. And the greatest fear in romantic relationships is shame. It is being rejected at your most vulnerable. Now, shame is a problem for all human beings. You may expect a conversation about shame in a religious setting, but please, don't fool yourself to think that only we religious people talk about shame. Shame is a huge problem in our culture. In fact, it is a bigger problem today than guilt. We used to be much more focused on guilt. We've transitioned from guilt to shame. Brene Brown, in her 2012 TED Talk on shame, try to explain the dynamic of shame. Now, this TED Talk was seen by 14 million, over 14 million people. It's incredible. I mean, you imagine 14 million people. It's incredible. The reason people are watching stuff like that and reading books like that is because we're wrestling with these deeper realities of life, like shame, and we don't know how to handle it. So we go to researchers like Brené Brown, who's a researcher on shame and vulnerability, and we try to get some wisdom from them. And so she says, she's able to verbalize, I think, what we all experience. We're all dealing with shame. This is how she defines it. The thing to understand about shame, she says, is it's not guilt. We conflate the too often, but they're different. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. And then she asked her audience, how many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? But how many of you would be willing to say that? Guilt, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But shame, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Do you see the difference? Guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Shame is a much deeper problem than guilt. In fact, Brene Brown says that in her research, she's found that it is shame that's connected to all sorts of psychological dysfunction, and actually not guilt. It's shame, because it goes to the very deepest understanding of who you are. That's your identity. When you say, I am bad, it's very difficult to get out of it. If I did something bad, I can fix it. But if I am bad how can I fix myself? No, I live with a shame, and it fractures me, and destroys me. Our struggle with shame is rooted in that fundamental change in our nature that Genesis 3 tells us. I love when you read a secular psychologist, in this case a researcher, and they reveal a piece of truth that we have known all along, because we've read this book. Friends, if you're a Christian, you know this is is not unfamiliar to you. That shame comes from our loss of love. That shame comes because our nature has been changed because we are, in fact, bad. We are sinners. We know that. We also know how to deal with that, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But we know our true condition. If you're not a religious person, again, I'm asking you to consider that what Scripture says actually fits what you feel, what you aspire to, which you struggle with. No matter what your view of the Bible is, you may think it's an old book that, that men wrote a long time ago and it's full of contradictions, but I'm asking you to consider if it, what it says actually fits your reality because I think it does. Now look at verses 8 through 10 in, in Genesis 3. We see that loss of love, the change in nature, leading to shame and hiding from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is what happened. Adam hides from God because He doesn't want to be vulnerable anymore with God. He can't be naked in God's presence anymore. Why? He's changed. He went from being God's friend, fully accepted with God, to a rebel against God. He's on the other side. He wanted to be God. And now when he sees God, he hears God walking around, he hides. He looks for a tree big enough to to hide his nakedness. There's shame and fear now. Why? Because their natures have changed. They're not who they used to be. There's something fundamentally wrong with them now. And their shame is thus completely appropriate. This is exactly the kind of reaction that should have happened. It's not just what they did. It's who they are now. And it's who we are now. So this is what happened in the garden. How does it affect us today? There are many connections, and there are many implications. And again, I'll cover some, but please ask more questions, and I'd be thrilled to talk to you more about that and process it with you and hear your views on that as well. One of the consequences of the loss of love, and this is our topic today, is the universal experience of sexual brokenness. Let me say this again. I I don't want to have any any misunderstanding about this this is a universal human experience we are all sexually broken there's not one of us that is sexually whole it doesn't matter whether you're married whether you're single it doesn't matter who you're attracted to who you're not attracted to none of us are sexually healthy and whole And the reason is because all of us share Adam's nature. There is wrong with us, with everyone else, there's something wrong. And it comes out in different ways, and part of the way it comes out is sexually, of course. This is our most vulnerable part. This is often, we think of sexuality as who I really am and build our identity around it, in fact. But if something is wrong on that very level of identity, it's no surprise that we're going to see all sorts of dysfunction all around us and in us. Everyone is struggling with vulnerability. Everyone is struggling with acceptance. Everyone is struggling with shame. And human sexuality, arguably, is that arena in which the struggle is the fiercest and the most painful. Now, the degrees of sexual brokenness vary, largely based on the connection of sexuality to love. So the farther away love is from sexual expression, the greater the dysfunction. Because by God's design, sexuality is covered by love. And it's covered, it's protected, it's fueled by love. That's an expression of love through sexuality. The more, the farther you remove love from sexuality, the more dysfunction we're going to see. Where love is allowed to control the sexual expression, like in a healthy marriage, for example the struggle with vulnerability and acceptance is understandably less painful. But it is still there. It is still there. Nobody, not even people in healthy, good marriages, are completely whole sexually. We're all broken. All of us are broken. None of us are able to be completely vulnerable and completely accepted in a human relationship that is simply not within our grasp. I think it's important for the church, for the evangelical church, not to pretend that there is a way to avoid sexual brokenness. I'm afraid that parts of the evangelical subculture have been guilty of promising, I think falsely, to young people who are struggling with their sexuality that there is a reward for their purity. Maybe we have rightly defined the proper sexual expression of sexuality in a heterosexual marriage, but I think some of us have falsely presented a perfect sexual relationship in marriage as a reward for purity before marriage. I'm talking about the 90s purity culture. I'm talking about youth group talks. I'm talking about kids who heard, as long as you don't have sex before marriage, once you get married, you will have a perfect marriage. You will be perfectly fulfilled sexually. And so we've created this dichotomy, and we've created a a false understanding of purity. If you don't have sex before marriage, you are pure. And God will reward a pure person with a perfect marriage. And then we get married. And we say, this is not what I was told. I still have impure thoughts. I still wrestle. I still struggle in this area. Now, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that nobody's pure And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus leaves no room for anybody to say, I am whole sexually, I am pure. We begin, all of us, with the position of brokenness and impurity. And then God does his work. And God sometimes blesses us. Unexpectedly, with beautiful connections, with beautiful marriages. But this is grace. That's not because you were pure before marriage, whatever that means. We're all broken. Whether you are married and are struggling with lust towards another person, not your wife or husband. Whether you are struggling with same-sex attraction whether you are confused about your gender or sexuality, whether you are dealing with a pornography addiction, whether you are experiencing trouble in connecting with your spouse. Friends, th- these are all symptoms of the same core problem, namely our separation from the love of God. And in that, in that sense, we are all equal we all stand in need of God's grace. Please don't feel that if you are married and you've had children that somehow you're better off, better off than everybody else and you don't need as much grace. You need just as much grace as anybody else. Sure, there's different struggles, there's different degrees of destruction of course, that's true. But all of us are fundamentally impure. All of us are fundamentally broken. And we need God. And that's the only way to fix it. But before we get there, let me give you some ways that I see our culture dealing with, and the church as well, with this problem of shame and and sexual brokenness. First, we cover up our shame. This is what Adam and Eve did when they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. There's a cover-up of our shame. Now today, I think we do that primarily through self-acceptance. We justify ourselves and we say, I shouldn't feel any shame. So you cover up your shame by rejecting there's any idea of sexual shame. Let me quote from from one author. This is Nadia Bowles-Weber, who writes in her 2019 book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. She says, I'm here to tell you Unless your sexual desires are for minors or animals, or your sexual choices are hurting you or those you love, those desires are not something you need to struggle with, quote-unquote. They are something to listen to, make decisions about, explore, perhaps have caution about, but struggle with, fight against, make enemies of? No. This is what she says. Do you see what she's saying? She and the majority, maybe the majority of our culture today, says that we should make peace with the shame by saying this is how it's supposed to be. Anyway, I shouldn't feel weird about my sexual urges. That's normal. There shouldn't be any shame in my desires as long as I'm not hurting anybody. It's okay. I think it's like making a mistake of choosing the wrong color for your house, and then after the house is painted and you realize your mistake, you say, um, yeah, but I meant it all along. This is a better color anyway. So glad I worked out this way. You're covering up your mistake by confidence. You're basically saying that, sure, deep down inside, I know it's shameful, but if I live my life as if there is no shame in this sexual expression, then I will be okay. Then everybody will accept me. Now, this is why in our culture today, same-sex marriage is considered normal. Why we are much more comfortable with non-exclusive sexual relationships, polyamory, and other configurations of sexual relationships. This is why. Because we have have such a hard time with shame that we, we say, what if we just reject the whole idea of it? What if I just make peace with myself and say, this is how I am supposed to be? Now, my suggestion today is that I think this is a a false identity. This identity is based on what sin has done to us and not on how God made us. Now, often in this kind of conversation, you hear people say, this is how God made me with these sexual expressions. And so accept me as I am. And to that, the Bible says, this is not how God made you. This is how sin made you. This is not who you really are. Who you really are is what you feel you're struggling with, is the reason you can't completely embrace yourself. That's the image of God fighting against your sin nature. So it's not how God made you. And if it's not how God made you, that makes it a fundamentally dishonest view of yourself. It is determining that the serpent's lie is actually true, that you get to determine who you are. Such deception prevents the possibility of true vulnerability and thus love. Now, this approach is often presented as real authenticity and vulnerability. But I think this is a projection of confidence designed to ensure acceptance. This is how it goes. Surely, no one will love a person who is confused about who they are and cannot figure out which part of them is the image of God and which part isn't. So this this faw vulnerability is nothing more than a fig leaf. True vulnerability, true authenticity is to say, I don't know who I am. And I'm not sure what to do with my sexuality. Friends, that's honest. That's vulnerable. And if I cannot admit that I struggle with a part of me and instead have to pretend that there's nothing to struggle with, how can I expect anyone else to know me if I'm refusing to know myself, much less love me? Now, this very common approach to shame is a radically self-centered approach that by definition excludes possibility of real love. Love is self-giving. It's self-sacrificing. But this kind of avoidance of shame is actually self-serving and self-protective. Now the second approach is this, we hide. We see just like Adam and Eve hid among the trees in the garden, we too avoid vulnerability and openness. Now, this approach is in part responsible for the delay and decline of marriage in our culture. Many people want to first figure out who they are, build their lives on their terms, get your career going, perhaps even buy a house, figure stuff out, right? And then I'm going to invite another person to enter into my life, a life that I already built, and see if they fit. But that is antithetical to love. Love is vulnerability, right? I have not figured it out. I don't know how to live. Enter into a relationship with me, let's figure it out together. That's marriage. It's not, here are my terms, and there are your terms, and let's see if they come together. Let's see if we're compatible in this way. That is not how marriage works. That's a negotiated power relationship, which is exactly what God said marriage was going to be After the fall, it says your desire will be for your husband, but your husband will rule over you. That's a negotiated power relationship, and sexuality is stuck right in the midst of it. And this is where we are today. Now, perhaps the most obvious example of sexual expression apart from vulnerability is pornography. Sexual gratification can be achieved in complete secrecy. Nobody needs to know me. I don't need to be vulnerable at all. No vulnerability, no relationship is necessary, no love, only lust. But if what we need is actually love and acceptance, if that is at the core of what we need, how can we achieve it by avoiding vulnerability? It's impossible. C.S. Lewis famously said To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And perhaps this quote explains our culture's lovelessness. We have separated sex from love to protect ourselves from pain, but instead we found that our hearts are empty of love. And the pain... This causes us is almost unbearable. And lastly, quickly, the third strategy of dealing with shame is we can accept God's covering. We can accept God's covering. This is the biblical Christian approach to sexual ethics. In Genesis three twenty one, we read that it is God who made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and He clothed them. I think this was God's mercy. God knew that they could not survive the rejection their vulnerability would cause. Their shame was too great for them to bear, so he minimized it, he's limited it, he's put boundaries around it, he clothed them, he covered them. And so when we consider what the Bible teaches about sexuality, we recognize that God in his mercy gave us two ways to live. One is heterosexual marriage, and the other is celibate singleness. Those are biblical ideas. These are two ways in which we can cover ourselves. Both are acceptable in the Bible. One is not better than the other. Both states have inherent challenges and advantages. And before you accuse me of an antiquated view of sex, I'd like to point out that our culture today is instinctively grasping for the same sexual ethic that the Bible has given us we have seen how much damage unrestricted sexual activity can cause. We've seen that. If sex is not rooted in love, it becomes an exercise of power. And our culture is wrestling with sexual abuse, sexual assault, especially in the workplace by those who are more powerful than others, sexual manipulation in high school and college. It is amazing how much has been written and talked about these issues. Why are we talking about it when we're free sexually? Why are we experiencing all these issues? And the reason is, is because it's been separated from love. And so the solution that our culture suggests is consent. We have to figure out consent. That's that's what all the conversation is about. We minimize the damage caused by sexual freedom by consent which, by the way, is limiting sexual freedom. Well, Christians say this is what we have known all along. We've been talking about this. We call it marriage. We've always said that sexuality cannot be released without any bounds. We have to cover ourselves with God's coverings. And we have two, marriage, heterosexual marriage, and singleness. Those are the two, celibate singleness. And if we do that... We're saying marriage provides consent. And celibate singleness says if you don't have consent, don't have sex. This is what our culture is saying we should do. And we should say we know. (laughs) We know. We've been saying that. We've been building our lives around these ideas. Because this is what God told us. Because of our fallen condition, this is how we can have any chance at not hurting each other. So maybe, just maybe, the Bible is not the enemy of the Me Too movement after all. Now, what can be done? Let me finish on this, and this is the most important part, always the most important part, is what can be done? How can we solve these problems? Is there a solution? Well, perhaps a better question is, what has been done? What has God done for us? Now, if you remember, I said that the underlying problem is the loss of God's love. And even in the best marriage, apart from God, we still tend to use sex for power, to manipulate, to use other people, to negotiate. Even in the best of relationships, vulnerability is extremely difficult. All of us have experienced rejection when we opened up to someone who chose not to love us. And all of us, on some level, are living in shame. All of this is because we cannot be vulnerable and accepted with God. That's the primary relationship that has been broken. But God has not stopped loving us, even after we have rejected his love. And the greatest expression of his love towards rebels who are hiding from him is the coming, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what can restore God's love to humanity. Archbishop Rowan Williams once said, the gospel will never tell us we are innocent, but it will tell us we are loved. It's a beautiful quote. The gospel will never tell you, well, just don't feel ashamed. There's nothing wrong with you. That's not the gospel. The gospel will never excuse your sin, but the gospel will affirm that God loves you. God doesn't overlook our shame. He doesn't pretend that this is how it's supposed to be all along. Nor does God avoid vulnerability. Listen to what Jesus has done for you. When Jesus came, he accepted the vulnerability of humanity. God became human. Scripture tells us that he emptied himself. God emptied himself. That's vulnerability. That's openness. God became naked. Let me put it a different way. God stripped himself of his divine defenses. When Jesus came into this world, God becoming human, perfectly God, perfectly human, completely God, completely human. This is God choosing not to hide from us. We've been hiding, but God says, I am not hiding from you. I am coming to love you. I am walking around looking for you in the garden. I am asking you questions. I am calling you home. And by the way, Jesus experienced our brokenness, not just vulnerability with no consequences, but real brokenness, not sinfulness. Let me make a, a distinction here. Jesus was not sinful, but he certainly experienced the limitations of fallenness, of sinful humanity. Now, this may surprise you, but Jesus lived as a sexual minority. Did you know that? Did you know that? A Jewish man in his 30s, unmarried. Don't you think people were gossiping about him? Don't you think people were saying, what is wrong with him? Why is he not married? Jesus lived a life of a sexual minority. That's amazing. What do you think he was thinking when he was at that wedding at Cana? Why am I not getting married? That's what he was thinking. But he was thinking of his bride for whom he came to save us. Why did he live a life like that? He came to take our shame and recover God's love for us. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, do you see that Jesus was actually vulnerable and rejected? The very thing we fear, the very definition of shame, Jesus went through it for us. Vulnerable, completely vulnerable and completely rejected. But it was not his shame that he experienced, but ours. He took our shame upon him. He bore our shame. Look at the next verse, Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He bore our shame. But it's worse than that. It's not only that we rejected his vulnerability. He was smitten and afflicted by God himself. Jesus was vulnerable and rejected by God in our place. It it can't get any more vulnerable, and it can't get any more rejected. Did you know that when people were crucified in ancient Rome, they were typically crucified naked, men and women? Crucified naked. Do you know why? This was the most humiliating and shameful thing Romans could have, could have think. And so they thought, how can we humiliate? And by the way, it was, it was reserved for rebels, for revolutionaries, for those who went against the state. That's who got crucified. Those who rebelled against the power of Caesar. They were put on the cross, naked, painfully dying for all to see complete vulnerability and complete rejection. And Jesus did that. Jesus did that, not only being shamed by us, being rejected by us, being vulnerable with us, but he was naked before God. And he was naked before God, and he was rejected by God in our place. Imagine the vulnerability of nakedness on the cross. Just humanly, imagine that humanly. But imagine, if that is your state before God. Imagine the shame, the rejection, the humiliation. And he did all of that on our behalf and in our place. Became naked and vulnerable before God and was rejected. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now experience God's love this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is the message of Christianity, this is what the Bible is about, that Jesus did something so that we can now be restored into a relationship with God. Because Jesus was rejected, we are accepted. That's what we sang saying about. Because he was rejected, completely vulnerable, completely rejected, we can be completely vulnerable and accepted. Because Jesus took our shame, We can be naked and unashamed before God. We don't need to hide anymore. Because what Jesus has done, you can be completely open with God and know that He loves you. Listen to Wesley Hill, a celibate single Christian who's writing about these issues. This is what he says. True shamelessness, gospel shamelessness, comes not from making peace with your present identity and activity and declaring yourself free from shame. It comes instead from hearing a word from outside yourself and beyond your own head, God's promise of free forgiveness and new life through Christ. You don't deal with shame on your own from within yourself you accept God's word from the cross that you no longer need to be ashamed, that there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, that your guilt has been taken away, that your sin, that your shame was taken away by Jesus. For a married Christian, this means freedom to give yourself sexually to your spouse in love. This is is the implication. Ideas have consequences. If you're a married Christian, you are now free to give yourself sexually in love, not in power, in love to your spouse. But it also means for the married Christian that we can love our spouse by sacrificing our sexual needs. What a powerful thing for marriage. And all because Jesus loves me. For a single celibate Christian, the gospel means ability to build deep friendships without sex. It means not having to build your identity on sex. There is tremendous freedom for love in that. And for all of us who are paralyzed by shame, whether something you have done sexually or something that was done to you, shame works both ways whether you're a perpetrator or a victim, what the gospel means to you is forgiveness, acceptance, and love. Your shame has been taken away by Jesus. I want you to hear me. If you're struggling with shame, which most of us are, it's not a secret, but if you're struggling with shame, Jesus has taken it away. You can be free from that. You can be free to experience His love and for you to love Him and others. You can now live a new life by faith. You're not condemned and rejected anymore.